Well, good morning, friends, and welcome, a warm welcome to St. Matthew's this morning, uh, to those of you who are in the building and those of you who are joining us online. Uh, we come together as people who love the Lord Jesus, who came amongst us to die for us, to rise for us, who now rules all things. So shall we stand as we sing, to you, my Lord, will I sing praise. standing, I'll lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you brought each one of us here this morning. And we thank you for making yourself known to us in Jesus Christ and for the hope we know in him. As we gather, help us to express our thanks and praise as we hear your word, as we sing of your glory and as we pray to you and encourage one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, a warm welcome again uh, to St Matthew's on this beautiful spring morning. Uh, we gather today uh, in the third of our series of stories of grace. And this morning we'll be hearing the story of Mary Magdalene, uh, especially what took place in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And uh, Nathan Campbell will be speaking to us about that story of grace. We'll also be hearing uh, another local story of grace uh, today from Jess Van Loon, and her story has been recorded uh, through the week. Uh, Jess is a member of Night Church, but she's often here at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, with her mother, Frida. So we look forward to hearing that story as well. Another feature of our gathering this morning is that towards the end of the service, we'll be sharing together in the Lord's Supper. Uh, so for, particularly for those of you at home, it'd be great if you haven't already organised some bread and a cup to drink from. Uh, to get that organised uh, before then. But uh, right now what we're going to do is we're going to read together uh, some excerpts from Psalm 145. It's a wonderful thing that God has given us 150 psalms, and this one, especially the little segments that we're reading this morning, uh, give an account of the character of God uh, who brings us together this morning. So I invite you to join me as we read this together. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, 
slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, in a moment, we're going to hear uh, news from St. Matthew's, but just ahead of the news that's been broadcast right across St. Matthew's today, I'll let you know that next weekend, with Jazz Weekend happening and Jazz Church at the other services, we've got a special program of music here, uh, which will feature our choir and a number of items that they'll uh, perform for us, as well as plenty of singing for us to enjoy. And I'll be giving a short talk on why we sing in church, what it is that it gives us voice to sing in church. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. There'll be slightly different arrangements. There's quite a bit of setting up has to happen for jazz church with a choir of 14 or 15, I think it is, and a number of musicians. So it'll look a little bit different at the front here, but it'll, it should be a great day as we, as we gather. Let's hear some more news from St. Matt's. side of the church operations. We hope you feel welcomed at our service today. It's so great having you with us and we trust that you enjoy your time with us today, especially if it's your first time. We have a nifty way of getting in touch with us. We call it our connection card and you'll find it in the seats in front of you. Give it a scan and let us know that you are here and we'll get in touch with you during the week. This is also the final call for the next onboard course. It's running tomorrow night. And it's for anyone that's ready to start calling St. Matt's their spiritual home. It begins at 7.30 p.m. in the Darley Smith building. And there will be a light supper, a chance to meet others, and then hear about what our church is about and what it looks like to become a contributing member. If you're coming, we would love to know. So you can do that through the QR code or simply by telling one of the ministry staff. Lastly, Jazz Church is finally upon us. And next weekend, across our three later services, 10, 5 and Night Church, David and the St. Matt's Choir and some special guests will be leading us through Jazz Church with a distinctly African vibe. It's a Sunday that is not to be missed and it's obviously a great chance to invite someone along to church with you. There will also be a stack of African markets set up in the courtyard to enjoy after each service and throughout the whole day. So we hope to see you there. Are we going to turn to prayer now? So please bow your heads as I lead us. Heavenly Father, you are all eternal and almighty. We praise and thank you that through the death and resurrection of your son, we can call you father and come to you as children. In your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, we continue to pray for the Ukraine and its people. And we ask that you would have mercy on those who suffer the miseries of a war not of their own making. May your love and compassion flow abundantly through the chaos and fear that each new day brings. We pray that you'll comfort the brokenhearted, the wounded and the dying, that you'll confound the hatred and madness of those who make for war in this place and across the world. And we pray that you'll unite us all, you, you will unite us all under the reign of your Son, the Prince of Peace, before whose judgment seat the rulers of the world will give account. And this week we pray also for the work of Heal Africa, our mission partners in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You know what they need at the moment is peace and security as violence continues around them. Lord, grant peace in that region. We thank you that no staff have been injured so far. As thousands flee their homes and head to Goma, the local township, we pray for 
safety and provision for those refugees. And we praise you for the work of the team at HEAL who are, do are doing and ministering to people spiritually, physically and emotionally in the midst of the violence around them. Thank you for their faithfulness and give them strength as they, they support, support those in need of care. Lord, we thank you for your great gift of grace that is so beautifully expressed in the life of Rahab that we heard about last week. Your way is to lift up and honour the outcast and those of low status in our midst. In your eyes, we are not the downtrodden in the shadows, we are the jewels in your crown and you give each one of us a part to play just as Rahab in an amazing way became the great-grandmother of King David in the bloodline of Jesus. May we see ourselves as you see us, forgiven and cleansed by the sacrifice of your son and privileged to play a part in growing your kingdom. Father, guide us as you guide creation according to your law of love. May we choose to serve you and love one another as we go about our days this week. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We've got a chance to sing again our offertory hymn. Please stand and join our musicians as they lead us. his grace is like. You know, it's undeserved. We don't deserve it. I, my name's Jessica and I've been at St Matt's for 22 years. Um, and in 2017, in November 2017, the worst thing happened to me. My husband said to me, out of the blue, my love tank for you is empty. And um, the floor fell from beneath me and I was in a terrible sea of grief. My family and I, my children, three children and I um, had to cope with that and one and a half months later he left to fly overseas and we discovered six months later that on arriving in Belgium he'd gone to live uh, with his girlfriend and so he had left me for another woman and I was broken. I call it my winter, uh, this period of time that happened after that. It was two and a half years of grief and great sorrow. I grieved for my husband. I had hoped that he would return and I prayed for that. I asked the Lord um, 
please bring him back, restore our marriage. But um, he did not return. And it was two and a half years later that um, I came to that point of realisation. And right in the middle of my, uh, what I call my winter, a friend of mine um, who lives in Germany, I was there visiting Laura, she said to me, I have a word for you, and she said, you're on the ice and it's cracked and it's time to get off the ice, was a word from the Lord. And she had a bit more to tell me afterwards but thought she'd just wait a week to tell me. And she said, um, just sit with that. So I did and I, I sunk into the word and I, I thought, God, okay, I'll, I hear you. You've got to help me. And then a week later she said, you've got to get off the ice because spring is coming. And um, ice melts in spring, so you can't stay on the ice or you'll fall through. And um, I took that as a, an encouragement and a word from the Lord that it was time to move out of this terrible sadness. And um, so I did. It was a year later that my springtime arrived and um, I landed so gently on solid ground that I didn't realise I'd hit it until I realised my tears had stopped. I'd actually cried for two years at that point, but the tears for Mike had stopped and then I knew, oh, this must be the spring that God had promised me. And then there were many really good things, uh, blessings that happened after that. Uh, my children got engaged, Tasman to M, Jonah to Jess, and my daughter Laura returned from Europe. It was just blessing after blessing after blessing. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was in springtime. I'd moved into that space. Mike is not here in Australia, he's living in Belgium, so it was easy to sort of disassociate him from my family somehow, my children and I, as we experienced all these joys. But on his arriving in Sydney in April this year, I was confronted with the fact that forgiveness was something that I had to do, and I didn't want to do it. And um, I told my family, yes, you can see Mike, but I won't. Um, you do your family thing, but I'm going to be staying out of that scene. But God had other plans. I sort of made it clear my plans, but God's plans were different. He started to massage my heart. It's the best way I can describe it. I'd read the scripture, the word, and everything about forgiveness would just jump off the page and hit me. And it was like, okay, God, I hear you, but he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And... Um, but after three wrestling sessions with God, I got to the point of surrender. And I decided that I would forgive Mike. I decided it on a Tuesday and on the Wednesday, I forgave him for adultery. God's got a great sense of humor because I thought that I would forgive Mike on a neutral territory on grass by the sea with a takeaway coffee. You know, it would be something that I could do um, on neutral territory. But it was pouring with rain, cats and dogs, and so I had to bring him to my home because a cafe felt too public. And we sat down and I had written my words of forgiveness because I thought, you know what? I'm... So I wrote it in a card and I read it to him and I gave it to him. And he cried, and um, then I bubbled on some more because the joy of the Lord, as it turns out, was my strength. I was able to talk about my blessings in my life. And um, he left. And then Laura and I sat down and I said, what now? And the word lavish just dropped into my head. God just put that word in my head. And I went, yeah, this forgiveness of God that he gives us, forgiveness is lavish. So I said, right, we'll lavish dinner. That's what we'll do. And um, I ended up setting a table for a lavish family dinner that night and we surrounded him with family love. And it's a miracle because I did none of this in my own strength at all. It's a God thing because um, I had wrestled, I had resisted doing it and yet God helped me. Joy of the Lord bubbled up. I was able to do it and then he showed me how to do it. So God's grace um, is just incredible and we get it every day and I think um, I now have a very deep understanding of what that is because I had not wanted to forgive Mike I didn't know how to do it 
he didn't deserve it. And yet God showed me, he also gave me that verse, you know, my yoke is easy, um, my burden is light. And um, so I stepped out in obedience to Christ in forgiving Mike. And um, I now know what his grace is like. You know, it's undeserved. We don't deserve it. And um, Mike didn't deserve it, but he's got it. He said he felt free afterwards, which was wonderful. And I reflect on that because that's how I feel with my God under his grace. The reading this morning is taken from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. The reading may be found on page 1087 in the Church Bibles. Page 1087. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramatic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Good morning, 8am. 
Before I begin, I just uh, I want to thank you, Jess, for uh, sharing that story with us. I, um, <clears throat> I edited it this week, so I've, I heard it a lot, but just sitting there listening to it uh, this morning, I, I, I was so moved, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to preach in a minute. <laughs> so I just got to collect myself. Uh, hmm. Let's pray as we start. Father God, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for our sister Jessica and for her willingness to share with us this morning how you've been at work in her life. What an incredible testimony, Father. Thank you for this day. What a beautiful day it is. We thank you for this company and the blessing of joining together as your people. And we thank you, Lord, for this word that you've given us this morning. May you fill our hearts with gratitude for all the ways in which you bless us. Amen. Amen. Uh, last year, the name uh, Mary was ranked uh, 208th in the list of most popular girls' names. 208th. And that was actually down 37 places from the previous two years. Tough break. It is a far cry, though, from 2,000 years ago in the first century Palestine where everyone seems to be calling their daughters Mary. You ever notice that? Just how many Marys there are in the New Testament? There are many. You've got uh, Jesus' mum, the most famous Mary of them all. Then there's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. There's Mary, the mother of Mark, we hear about in Acts chapter 12. There's Mary Magdalene. And then there's the other Mary. The other Mary. That's actually what Matthew calls her, the other Mary. There are so many Marys getting around. One of them had to be called the other Mary. There's five different Marys by my count. Today we're just looking at one of them, Mary Magdalene. Who was she? Who was Mary Magdalene? That's a question that's fascinated people for millennia. Even from the very early days of the church, the Catholic Church refers to her as the apostle to the apostles which is a nod to her being the one who, who got to share the news of Jesus' resurrection with the rest of the disciples. Then there was a Pope in the 6th century who was the first one to equate Mary with the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet, if you recall that story. So ever since then, it's been assumed that she must have been a prostitute, but it's very unlikely that was actually the case. She also plays... <coughs> excuse me... <coughs> She also plays a central role in what is known as the Gnostic Gospels. You might have heard of them before, the Gnostic Gospels. These were a collection of late heretical writings uh, which contain all sorts of myths about Jesus which contradict the four earliest Gospels that we have. Now, among these writings, there's even a Gospel of Mary which positions her as, as the most beloved and trusted of all of Jesus' disciples which is the thread that probably leads to where Dan Brown takes us in The Da Vinci Code. Spoiler alert if you haven't read the book or watched the movie, but it makes the salacious claim that, that Mary was actually Jesus' wife, that they secretly had children who ended up in the south of France, of all places, and they some, somehow became tied to the French royal family. So there's that. Now, I didn't realise it, but there was even a movie about Mary Magdalene a few years back, which, get this, boasted no less than three Academy Award nominees, including Joaquin Phoenix playing Jesus. When I first saw the poster, I actually thought it was a joke. Apparently not. But who is Mary Magdalene? <clears throat> Rather than listening to Hollywood or New York Times bestseller Dan Brown, we're going to take our lead on Mary from the gospel accounts themselves. Surprise! But her story of grace, I think, paints for us a picture of discipleship. She offers us an image of what following Jesus looks like. And it comes to us in at least three distinct ways. In Mary, we see a disciple of Jesus who was changed by his life, who was disappointed by his death, and who was honoured by his resurrection changed, disappointed, but then honoured. That's where we're heading this morning. 
Now, contrary to what some might claim, in truth, we actually don't know a whole lot about this woman. Out of the five Marys that we have in the New Testament, she's the only one who gets a last name, which is not bad, Magdalene. Though it's actually not a surname, it's a reference to where she was from. It literally means of Magdala. Magdala was a small fishing village around on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. You can see that's what it looks like today. You can actually visit the ruins. Jesus is not recorded as having visited Magdala, though there's a good chance he probably did, given that Mary becomes one of his disciples in what must have been pretty dramatic circumstances. The first we hear of her is in Luke's Gospel. He tells us that the twelve were with Jesus and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, um, from whom seven demons had come out. Possessed by seven evil spirits until she met Jesus. What a profound change that must have been. Back then, demonic possession was a, a one-way ticket to the margins of society. You were considered unclean. You were considered a danger to those around you. It, it would have been a chaotic and an unpredictable life. And we don't know how long she was afflicted with this or what caused it, but we never hear any mention of a husband or children. So it's likely she probably had them for quite some time. And that one line in Luke's Gospel is actually all we get about her background. We're not even told what the encounter with Jesus looked like. But you can imagine, if she'd been suffering for a long time, right, she would likely have had a long list of things that she wanted to do if she was ever free of them. In the end, though, you can see there in the passage, she throws her lot in with the one who had freed her. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. They joined the movement. That's about as dramatic a change as you can get, right? From demon-possessed to disciple of Jesus. Like, talk about a 180. You see, Mary had been touched. She had been changed. Her life had been changed by his. Which actually, when you think about it, that's... That's the story of every disciple, isn't it? Likely not as dramatic as an exorcism, but, but those, those who are here today who consider themselves disciples of Jesus, like we, we all have change moments, don't we? Throughout our own stories. <clears throat> moments of, of clarity, moments of conviction, moments that, that, that make our hearts soar in praise or that, that bring us to our knees in prayer. Like like flags planted along our walk of faith, right? Each one is a, is a testimony to the power of God's grace at work within us. And I wonder what your moments look like. When have you felt particularly shaped by God's grace? <clears throat> one of the biggest moments in my story was my first ever summer camp at the start of high school. I've been uh, brought up in the Christian faith, but that camp was the first time I remember ever really grasping the idea that, that my life wasn't my own. That God had actually bought it with his blood. And it was the first time I realized that I wasn't my own, that I was actually his. And that it meant my whole life actually had to be about him, not me. It was, a, it was a complete light bulb moment in my life and, it, and it's been shaping me ever since. It's actually part of why I'm in ministry today. Summer camp, 99. That was one of my moments. I wonder what yours sounds like. And it occurs to me that it's, it's entirely possible there may be people here at church today, across the day, who call themselves Christian but who actually aren't disciples of Jesus yet. See, to, to be a disciple is to follow another, to do as they do, to trust and to listen to and to follow what they teach. It's to be changed by them, actually. See, 
God's grace changes us, doesn't it? It draws us in. It, it reorients our hearts. It, it begins to change what we love, change what we long for, what we live for, how we live. Is that what's happened to you? There may be people here today who claim to be a disciple, to be a follower, but really the only person they're actually following is themselves. There hasn't been any real change moments in your story, and so your life doesn't really look like Jesus at all. It really just looks like the world. If that is you, or you suspect that it might be, the good news is that it's not too late. In fact, God might be using Mary's story of grace today to start your own story of grace. Wouldn't that be something? And maybe today becomes the first real moment of change for you. Luke 8 offers us just a hint of Mary's background, and it's not much, right? There's, there's actually nothing else about her in the Gospels until the moment of Jesus' death. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his trial and crucifixion, Mark's Gospel actually tells us that everyone deserted him and fled. And that's, that's the way it stays the next day, according to the Gospel accounts. As Jesus gets tried, first before the Sanhedrin and then before Pilate, apart from Peter and his denial of Jesus, we actually hear nothing of Jesus' closest disciples. It's quite... Stark, I think. Even at his death, in the hour of his greatest need, in those, the throes of his greatest anguish, there's only one of the 12 disciples that's said to be there. The rest of them are nowhere to be seen. But Mary is there. Mary's there. And in fact, all four Gospels attest to her presence at Jesus' death, which is pretty remarkable, I think. I don't know if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ. I'm sure a lot of you have. It is not an easy watch. I, uh, I saw it at the cinema when it came out, and then never again. I've never watched it again. Once was enough. In fact, once was too much. But imagine actually being there and having to watch it and hear it to feel it happening to someone you loved so deeply. The pain and the shame and the isolation and the helplessness and all of this is happening to, to one that you owed your, your life to. I, I, I can't really blame Jesus' disciples for not wanting to be there. I, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be there either. But Mary was there. Mary was there. And that can't have been an easy watch. And yet she couldn't abandon the one who hadn't abandoned her. The one responsible for giving her her life back, she wasn't going anywhere. And she's not just there as he's dying. Matthew and Mark both tell us that she was there at Jesus' burial as well. Think about that. Think about what that means. It means that she must have been at Golgotha all day. All day. Even as the sun was finally setting and as they were pulling Jesus' body from the cross, she still couldn't leave. To be a disciple is to follow another. Well, Mary follows him all the way to the tomb. Think about that for a second. And even two days later, as, as soon as Sabbath was over, basically, before the sun was even up, she's right back to that tomb. I like to think she returns to Jesus' tomb on that Sunday morning really because she had nowhere else to go. She'd given everything up to follow him. She was there that morning because for her there was no what's next. Of course she went to the tomb. Where else was she going to be? Friends, that's the kind of discipleship I want to have. That's the kind of discipleship I'm praying for my boys to grow into, where there is no what's next. Not even when life takes a rocky turn, not in those seasons of winter, when the darkness falls and it's impossible to work out what God might be doing. 
because the truth is there is nowhere else to turn except to him, to cling tighter, to lean closer, to call out louder, right? Mary doesn't visit the tomb that morning expecting or even hoping that Jesus has risen from the dead. She's in the dark on what God is doing, but she goes anyway because for her there is no what's next. God's grace leads her there, and it's, that's the kind of stuff I hope and pray my discipleship is made out of. What about you? And what I think makes it all the more incredible is when you consider just how disappointed she must have been. Disappointed by him. Disappointed by his death. I mean, what must have been going through her head as she just spent a whole day watching Jesus slowly die on the cross. This same man who had the power to stop storms and to banish demons, the one on whom she had rested all of her hopes, the one that she'd left everything to follow. What's going through her head? As Jesus' enemies taunted him on the cross, you you might recall what they said to him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. picture Mary actually watching from a distance almost whispering the same thing do it Jesus why aren't you doing anything why are you letting them do this to you none of it would have made any sense and then as the stone was rolled into place sealing the tomb like what kind of questions would have come then right there'd been no miracle No spectacular escape. Jesus was now truly dead and buried. Does that mean he was a fraud? Had he been lying? What does it now mean for her? You can imagine some of the other disciples who are trying to talk sense to her. Mary, it's done. It's over. Let go. He's gone. This is pointless. What are you doing going back to the tomb? Go back to bed. We need to move on. We were wrong. This would have easily been the most disappointing moment in Mary's life. No question. And yet through it all, what's she doing? She's still there. As the nails went in, she's still there. As he cried out to his father and breathed his last, she's still there. As they prepared his body and then sealed it in a tomb, she's still there. Even two days later, early Sunday morning, she's still there. Friends, Mary offers us an extraordinary picture of discipleship in the dark. She chooses to draw near despite her disappointment, despite the confusion and the doubt and the danger. Mary stays. At one level, it's not much, but at another, it really is. And the truth is, all disciples of Jesus face times of darkness and disappointment, don't we? Seasons in life where where God does something differently to what we were hoping or expecting or praying for him to do. What does discipleship look like in those times? deep disappointment. Well, Mary is one example. Another is the story that Jessica shared with us in that video before. Going through her winter, as she called it, to the way that God's grace was at work, even in her darkness and disappointment. Even able to bring her to that place of forgiveness. I wanted to share a part of that interview that actually didn't make the final cut. Uh, At one point, Jess said this. She said, winter was very hard, but I actually grew in my faith at that point. I was absolutely dependent on the Lord for every breath. I was sinking into the word, morning, noon, and night. The best times of worship were at the bottom of the valley. At the bottom of the valley. Friends, like Mary, that is a picture of discipleship in the darkness. Deciding to draw near to God, even when he's disappointed you. 
And you might be in a moment like that yourself, right now, in a winter of your own. Maybe disappointed with God is, a, is an absolute understatement. Maybe you've lost relationships long before you were expecting to. Maybe it's the body or the mind that God's given you that's been disappointing in some way. Why aren't things working like they should? Why hasn't God done something about it? What is he doing? Friends, every disciple could say yes to one of those questions. If not now, then at, at one time or another. If not those specific questions, then you'll have ones of your own. Because times of darkness and disappointment, they're a feature of life in this broken world, aren't they? And yet we worship a God who is bigger than our understanding and who sees everything, every angle, not just what's right in front of me. So the answers that we're after, they're not always easy to come by. And I'm sure that's exactly what all the disciples were grappling with in those dark days following Jesus' death. But despite her disappointment, Mary stays. For us, sometimes the darkness, the disappointment lasts weeks or even years or even decades. Mary's darkness was just three days. Of course, as we read early on that Sunday morning, as she comes to continue preparing Jesus' body, instead of a sealed tomb, she finds an empty one. And instead of a dead body, she comes face to face with her risen Lord. It's an incredible account that we get there in John's Gospel, isn't it? It's not until he calls her by her name, she hears his voice, that he finally then comes into focus. And it's him. Incredible. She had ventured to the tomb that morning in order to honour Jesus. Instead, he's the one who ends up honouring her. The first person in history to receive the good news. Jesus lives. He's risen in victory. Death's been defeated. She gets to be the first to find out. Jesus gives her that honour. The apostle of the apostles. The first to proclaim the good news. You ever stop to ponder how strange it is that she's the first? Of all people, Mary Magdalene's the first that Jesus appears to. I've got a friend I grew up with, uh, and you could legitimately call her an Instagram influencer, if you know what that is, an influencer. She's amassed close to 100,000 followers on her Instagram account, which is a fair chunk. And companies know just how much power there is in that kind of influence. So she's actually had offers of up to $1,000 for a single post if she mentions their product. Crazy. See, for these brands, it's just another way to advertise, right? Of, of having their product endorsed to as many people as possible. And they're willing to pay for it. But looking at who Jesus appears to, it's like he's skipped Marketing 101. Out of all the people he chooses to appear to first, it's Mary Magdalene. It's like she is not who you would choose if you were trying to influence as many people as quickly as possible. It was up to me. I'd have dropped Jesus in mid-session of the Sanhedrin. Imagine that. Guess what? I'm back. Or have him appear in the temple before Caiaphas, the high priest. I told you I would rebuild it in three days. Or a synagogue full of Pharisees, wouldn't that be something? Or a dinner party at Pilate's palace. There are so many good options, right? Or even Peter, the one who just denied Jesus three times. Not even he is the first to see Jesus risen. It's Mary Magdalene. She's a virtual nobody who, who barely even rates a mention in the Gospels. No status, no power, no influence. A woman at that time, her testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. Even worse, she, she'd been previously in the possession of seven demonic spirits. That is not a great reputation for your first eyewitness to have, right? It, it couldn't have done wonders for her credibility. On your list of influences, Mary's got to be somewhere down the bottom 
And yet, Jesus chooses her to be first. Of course he does. The one who would follow him all the way to the tomb. So many more important people he could have appeared to. Important in the world's eyes. And yet, what does Paul say at the start of 1 Corinthians? But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Appearing to Mary first, it's a beautiful demonstration of God's upside-down kingdom, isn't it? And friends, we worship a crucified saviour. Those two words don't belong together. That is the good news. The message of the cross is foolishness to our world. It's foolishness to shame the wise, to shame the strong and the influential. Why? Why do it like that? Because because then it has to be him. His wisdom, not ours. His strength, not our own. And I mean, that's grace, right? That's grace. And because it's his grace at work, then all the glory is his alone. That's our God. Lastly, Mary is also a reminder that God's story of grace always ends with resurrection. Always. Mary's story ends with Jesus' resurrection, but our story of grace ultimately ends with our own. How important is that to remember, especially in those seasons of darkness and disappointment? Jesus rising on that first Easter Sunday, it makes a promise to us all, to all those who follow him. God's story of grace always ends with resurrection. If not in this life, then in the one to come. We started this story of grace this morning by asking the question, who is Mary Magdalene? Turns out the better question is, what kind of disciple was she? Fiercely loyal, quietly courageous, and with no what's next. Discipleship despite the disappointment. I wonder how has God been using her story to shape your own? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you work through the small things, the insignificant things. People like Mary Magdalene, who barely rates a mention in the gospel, and yet is such, such a powerful picture of what it means to follow you. She didn't do much, Lord, and yet her testimony speaks powerfully to all of us about what it means to hold on and to lean in particularly in those times of darkness and disappointment. Lord, we pray for all of us here, especially those who are in those moments right now, that your grace might be at work in our hearts and in our lives so that all the glory may may go to you as you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, there is so much to be thankful for, isn't there? And we're going to do... We're going to thank God actually in song by singing our final song. Now we thank, now thank we all our God. Let's stand and sing.
Please take your seats. And I'll just check, uh, does anyone need a little communion pack? We've got plenty at the back. Everyone's got one. That's great. And it will help to um, just take the plastic and foil off just as we're getting ready. So we've already had some time uh, this morning focusing on uh, those events around the death and resurrection of Jesus and uh, in so many ways seen it through the eyes of Mary Magdalene and the, the disappointment of her, uh, uh, that she felt, she must have felt, uh, together with the other disciples, in particular the apostles. Uh, and yet their joy as they realised that his, his death was not the end of his story. Uh, but the beginning of a whole new creation as he rose again on the third day. And so what we're doing this morning is in some ways reliving uh, the death in particular of Jesus as um, he prepared the disciples for what was to come. And that's what the bread and the, the wine is about as Jesus shared that last supper with the disciples. Now the scriptures put it this way, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after the meal, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So we'll share together in a moment in the bread and the cup. But firstly, let's come before God and confess our sins together. In 1 John, it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not, not in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have often gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle John goes on to say in 1 John, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So I'll lead us in a further prayer. We thank you, our Father, that in your love and mercy you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our salvation. By this offering of himself, once and for all time, Jesus made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and commanded us to continue a remembrance of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to our Saviour's command, in remembrance of his suffering and death, may be partakers of his body and blood. So let's take the bread now and eat it in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And let's take the cup and drink it in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for us and be thankful.
invite you to join me in this prayer of thanksgiving and dedication. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us in this hope that we have grasped so we and all your children shall be free and the whole earth live to praise your name. Amen. Amen. Would you like to stand? In a moment, please join us for morning tea across the other side of the courtyard there in the function room. But just as we close, have we got the words of the grace that we can put up on the screen? There they are. Shall we say this together? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.